Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the EMG podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Gore, CEO of EMG Health, and today we're celebrating 100 episodes of this podcast. Now, I've had the chance to interview some truly inspiring people from the world of business, entertainment, sport, uh, and many other things since we launched the podcast back in 2018. And today is no different. I'm very pleased to introduce legendary businessman, Sir Martin Sorrell, who I had the chance to interview recently. So Martin was CEO of WPP for 33 years, building it from a £1 million shell company in 1985 into the world's largest advertising and marketing services company. When Sir Martin left in April 2018, WPP had a market capitalization of over 16 billion, revenues of over 15 billion, and profits of approximately 2 billion, with over 200,000 people working across 113 countries. Two years ago, he founded S4 Capital PLC to build purely a digital advertising and marketing services business. In a little over two years, S4 Capital has over 2,600 people in 30 countries with a market capitalization of over $2 billion. We chatted for about 45 minutes and there's some great takeaways from it, including Sir Martin telling me how a bag of fish and chips helped build a 22 billion pound business. Uh, we talked about the importance of having a roadmap to help you achieve your goals and that if you aim to be the best, you will probably become the biggest. We also discussed the be, a, be obsessed or be average concept and that leaders make a difference, especially when they have skin in the game. Finally, we then touched on the need to make decisions, not delay them, but to make them and make sure you make more, more right than wrong ones. And at the end of the day, it's all about maximizing long-term profitability. So I hope you enjoy it, and please now join me for a fascinating 45 minutes with Sir Martin Sorrell. Hello, and welcome to the show, Sir Martin. Thank you very much for joining us today. Good to be with you. Um, so I wanted to kick us off and start, start off by going back to 1984. Yep. You're the group finance director working for the world-famous Saatchi & Saatchi, overseeing all of their acquisitions. And then one day you think, I've had enough of this, I'm, I'm going to start my own business. What, what makes you uh, make a decision like that? What pushes you to make a decision like that? It's a pretty brave thing to do. Well, it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't exactly brave because um, you know, I, I, I'd been working at Saatchi's for about nine years. I enjoyed it enormously. They gave me all the freedom to do uh, whatever I wanted to do. Uh, as long, along, interestingly, as I didn't get any public credit for it, but it was okay as long as it was within, within the firm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, frankly, it was a roadmap that my father, my, my dad had suggested uh, when, when I started. I mean, his advice for what it's worth was, you know, find a, uh, an industry that you enjoy, find a company within that industry that you, that you enjoy, build a reputation, as he put it, within that company. So that's not, you know, a reputation in terms of being known externally, yeah. but being known by investors or shareholders or clients and then if at the age of 40 or thereabouts you you want to go off and do something on your own do it on your own so i was following it wasn't that brave really i was just following a roadmap yeah that had been in, if, if anything i would probably regret that, that i didn't do it earlier maybe i should have done it about four or five years earlier when i was 35 as opposed to being 40 but you know it was 1985 i was 40 years old that was the what I regard as being the last chance saloon because, you know, at 40 in those days, it's not so much now, but in those days when you were 40, 
you know, you look back at the first 20 years of your supposed working life and forward at yeah. the next 20 years and you thought, well, you know, this was the midpoint. And now probably things have shifted a bit. You know, I'm 75 and I'm still working. So I suppose that that is probably 50 now where you yeah. look back at the first 30 years and you, you look at the next 30 and say, what are you going to do? So um, it wasn't that brave. Um, you know, I borrowed some money. I, I had, I think, about £2 million worth of stock in Saatchi's and I borrowed about £250 million from uh, uh, the bank um, to, to buy stock in, in what, what was then called wire and plastic products along with a, a, a friend called Preston Rabel uh, who left fairly early on before we made the bid for JWT. I, I, I don't think he had a strong stomach for, <laughs> for what he thought, he thought we, were, we were going in over our heads. Um, but in any event, I mean, it was, it, it was what it was. And I was really following a roadmap my, my dad had laid out. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool having that roadmap laid out like that. It's, I think a lot of people these days struggle for what they want to do. And, and having someone help you like that, I think, is a... Is a really no, good thing. Important. It's always important to have somebody you can talk to as yeah. no, no subjective, um, well, they might have an emotional attachment like your father or whatever, but, but there has, you know, they're, they're concerned about the, your agenda, yeah. your personal agenda, and they don't have any uh, motives of their own. I mean, I had, I've had two mentors. One was my dad, he died in uh, 1989. Uh, and then I, I had a lawyer in New York called Phil Reese, who was a sort of, I guess, a surrogate dad, actually, in his way. He didn't have a son. He had a couple of daughters. Uh, was a great father to them. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't think he had a son. I don't know in any, in any way I was a sort of surrogate son. I don't yeah. think so. Or maybe we were brothers. I don't know. But because uh, I didn't have a brother. I had a brother who died at birth a year before I was born. But... Um, you know, Phil, until he died just at the beginning of the new millennium, sadly, of cancer, just like my dad did uh, earlier on. I mean, he provided that advice. And I, and I think it is important to have somebody that you can talk to who is uh, objective yeah. and has your, your interests at heart and can be an advisor. And I think it's always useful to have that. Yeah, very much so. Uh, you, you touched on, on uh, yeah, WPP there. So you, you, you left there and invested in wire and plastic products. Yeah. Uh, they were a wire shopping basket manufacturer yes. and you went on to become the yeah. CEO. Uh, you, you took that sort of figurative basket and, and went on a shopping spree buying up advertising companies. So had yeah. This, yeah, was this part of the, the roadmap that you'd worked on as well? Is, or, or was it an idea that well, you sort of I, built on? I don't know it was part of the roadmap uh, or, or not. I mean, it was to build a business. And we, you know, we started with a shell company and it was a, you could call it almost a shell game, if you like. And in a way, we've done that with Derriston and S4 Capital, which we injected into a quoted shell called Derriston in what, September 2018 and, and renamed the company S4 Capital. I, I mean, the, the shell game, if I can put it like that, is rather like the SPAC game, you know, which is the special purpose acquisition vehicles that are, yeah. that are now um, you know, coming almost to a penny in in New York at the moment, you know, we're in a bull market and uh, bull markets favor these type type of operations. I did look at a SPAC for, um, for S4, but it takes too long and the investors have the right to um, call the capital, uh, right. pull it if they don't like the, the investments that you're making. So, you know, I've got a different structure. It was quicker and easier 
with the with the and S four capital is is like a private equity vehicle. We have a carry, yeah. depending on how we we do. I have a controlling share, so it's quite sort of unique, um, or certainly it's different yeah. to 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 many other vehicles. But the the shell game, you know, I wouldn't say it was part of the the roadmap, but. You know, I'd always, I, in fact, funnily enough, I, in 19, when was it, about 1971, 72, I did try to do something with my father. I mean, I, my father, who I loved dearly, was my, was, uh, is, and forever will be my best friend. Um, he, uh, he and I tried to work together, and I, you know, two regrets in life. One is that, you know, I never went work with him. Uh, we tried, as I said, in 71, 72, we tried to do a, a little shell vehicle, but it didn't work out. And he and I couldn't get on together, work, working together. I mean, remarkable when, you know, I think that I used to speak to him, um, I'm not exaggerating, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 times a, a day, even in the height of right. hostile takeovers, so-called for JWT or Ogilvy in 1987, 89. Obviously, he didn't see anything. Uh, beyond that, but you know the the the, uh, the two regrets I have. One is that that I didn't do anything with him, and secondly that he didn't have his own company. He was always a a donkey in the traces, as he put it, pulling the cart for yeah. somebody else. Uh, and because he wanted his family, my mother and myself, to have a, a good life, good education, be well looked after. We weren't a rich family, but we were we were comfortable, particularly as my father progressed as the as managing director of uh, the largest radio and TV electrical retailer in the UK with about 750 stores dotted around the country. So uh, those were my two regrets. But the, 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 the structure of wire and plastic products or WPP and indeed S4 is a well-trodden path. It's nothing that's unique to me. It's something that people do. I mean, we've just managed to execute at, I mean, Sarches itself was a sort of shell game, if you like, because it was injected into Garland Compton, the company in which Jimmy Gulliver, James Gulliver, had an interest in, and I worked for James, and that's how I got to meet the brothers. And they hired me as the CFO, and I worked there for nine years. So I wouldn't say it was part of the, my dad's advice. My dad actually interestingly said to me, you know, when I did the, the wire and plastics deal, you know, that when he was a young man, I think he ran a company, well, one of the companies, he ran Civic, Broadmead, and J&M Stone. And J&M Stone, I think, was a quoted company on the London Stock Exchange. And he said to me, actually, as he saw me doing what I was doing, that, you know, when he was a young man, he didn't realize, you know, what you could do with shell companies. I think in those days, after the war, after the Second World War, there weren't many people doing that type of thing. I mean, there might have been some operators who were doing it, but and probably a little bit murky, but... but um, he, he said he didn't really realize he didn't he, the way yeah. he put it was a bit unfair was because he left school when he was 13 he wasn't educated enough to figure figure that out so uh, no it wasn't it wasn't preordained but you know when you start with nothing effectively wire and plastic products was a, as you say a shopping basket manufacturer made pots and pans and saucepans and things um very good ones actually and very good shopping baskets but but it was small run by Gordon Sampson, lovely man, who was, you know, where there's muck, there's brass. You know, he, he didn't believe in paying a premium for anything. He bought companies from the liquidator. He was very shrewd. And uh, we went and saw, we went and saw Gordon Preston and I in Dartford at the Wireworks. 
smelling of fish and chips because we were starving. Gordon fixed the interview at about 2 p.m. in the afternoon, deliberately. I mean, not offering us lunch or anything. So we, yeah. we traipsed down to Dartford. <laughs> we were in Dartford High Street, and there was a fish and chip shop. And I said to Preston, I'm starving. So we went in and had a bag of chips, I think it was. And, and to, to his dying day, Gordon thought, thought that we had gone to the chip shop to prove that we were men of the people. Because, you know, Preston was a bit of a, <laughs> Preston was a, bit of a toff. He was a city stockbroker. Uh, you know, I was the finance director of, uh, of Sarches at the time, which coincidentally, amazingly, the advisor to um, one of the advisors, County Bank and Pam Mill Gordon, were the advisors to Wire and Plastic Products, and they were people that I knew very well. Right. And uh, just as an aside, an amusing story is that Gordon, when I went to see Gordon, um, he, uh, with Preston, uh, he rang uh, a director at County Bank, which, which was the subsidiary of NatWest at the time. And County Bank were advisors to WPP2. And Gordon said, look, I've just had this bloke Sorrel in with Rabel. And, you know, they tell me they want to do this with, you know, build uh, one plastic products into an advertising and marketing services firm, a multinational advertising and marketing services brand. What do you think? to this director of County Bank. And the director of County Bank was obviously put in a very difficult position because he had a, a classic conflict of interest. So he said to Gordon, no, let me think about it overnight. And he called him back the following morning and he said, um, wait, I, I can't give you any advice, Gordon, but let me just tell you a story. There was a guy called Greg Hutchins who had a company, I can't remember what it was called, a shell company, and, uh, or, or come across a shell company. And Greg Hutchins bought into the shell company the announcement was made, and before the announcement, the share price was 30p, and after the announcement, it was 60p. He said, that's all I'm going to tell you, and <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was it. So that was very funny. And, it, and actually, the interesting point about that story is you know, how important luck is. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it was just lucky that I was known to County Bank, I was known to Pamela Gordon, and they gave me a positive recommendation. To go back to my dad's advice build a reputation you know you know what you're doing or halfway know what you're doing it, it always rebounds to your your advantage yeah. so that was it so yeah it, it, maybe not luck you know you've, you've deliberately gone out and, and networked well, and met it, those people yeah, and got in that environment yeah again my dad said you make your own luck and i think there yeah, is yeah. some if you work hard at things and you you know you meet enough people you know, the, whatever it is, the nine degrees of separation or whatever it is work to your favor. I mean, the, the, the coincidences that occur, the, you know, the actual yeah. sort of, if I can put it crudely, movers and shakers that you, that, that constitute, you know, the, let's say the Western or even the Eastern world, it's a fairly limited number of people yeah. and contact points, probably about, maybe a thousand people or something like that and you you know you see them certainly pre-covid popping up at conferences yeah. you could spend your life going to conferences talking to them extremely boring but you could do that and and actually you know that that web of that web of influence or that web of that network uh, is quite limited and, yeah. and 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 quite uh, you know intertwined so that was a good example of it working to to my advantage yeah, if, uh, I think it was the Gary Player quote, yeah, yeah, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah, and I think, I think Gary Player was a client of, of, of Mark McCormack's when I worked for IMG, 
you know, right. the big three, uh, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas and Nicklaus and Gary Player, those were the three. So I knew Gary quite well, very, very determined, you know, practiced, practiced all the time. Never, yeah. never off the, the driving range or the putting green or the course, extraordinary. And very yeah. fit too, very fit. So, so you, you, while you were at WPP, uh, you know, it was a 30 year period, you, you, you spent billions of pounds buying some of the biggest advertising uh, uh, companies that there were, some of the biggest names in advertising. Um, you, you took the company to be the biggest um, advertising company in the world. W w was that always a goal for you, or was that just as a sort of a result of the success you had over the years? No, I think I think it. it yeah, I wanted to build. I, I've always been consumed with uh, scale. Maybe yeah. it's because I spent two years at Harvard Business School, and you know, every day we had three case studies, and the the, the question was, what should the chairman of, uh, and or CEO do, and why? And, you know, the trouble with HBS, and I was part of the, what was called the, the most naive class at the Harvard Business School by the admissions dean, Dean Athos. He, this was the time of the Vietnamese draft, so a lot of Americans, to avoid the draft, went straight on to graduate school. So we were naturally younger. So the average entry age was probably around about 23 or 24, exit age 25, 26. Today, entry about 25, 26, exit 27, 28. So... It was a much less experienced class. But the trouble with the HBS course is you come out of it, think, you know, you've been done three case studies each day about what should the chairman and CEO do, and you come out and you think you can run the world. And the yeah. truth is you can't run the world for at least uh, another 20 or 30 years until you've had the, had the experience. So, you know, I, I, I always wanted to do things at scale. Uh, you, know, I'm, you know, at S4, we started with a clean sheet of paper, if I have any frustration about the last two years, it's you know, we're at a smaller scale. Interestingly, we're already 25% of WPP's market cap after two years, with just 2.5% uh, of, their, of their people. So they've got 100,000 yeah. people, we've got 2,600 people. Our market cap is now about £1.8 billion, and their market cap is about £7.5 billion. So, so we're twenty five percent of their market cap with about with about two and a half percent of their people and, but if I have a frustration it's that we don't have the scale now we can do that by being more and more successful both organically and by and yeah. through deals but you know to be number one is 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 always you know it's like scoring a century isn't it i mean it's a measure when Zach Crawley you know, gets the, whatever it was, the 10th highest score, I think, ever, or maybe even better than that, six or seven highest score ever, 270, whatever it was, uh, at a tender age, you know, that's a marker. And, and people yeah. confuse, they, you know, often people will say, you know, all he's interested in is making money. That's not true. Um, what I, that, that's, that's runs on the board, that's the score. Yeah. And in the same way, being number one is a measure, you know, sometimes not a good measure, you know, but it's a measure of how successful you've been. So I would say these are signposts um, or markers of, of yeah. achievement. And, you know, we, we hit a market cap, I think, at the peak of <clears throat> 22 billion pounds. When I left, it was 16 billion, and now it's about seven and a half, eight. So we're, we're, we'll see. But I, you know, I just think being number one is an objective. Um, I don't think it's, you know, Morris Sarchi used to say, and I think he was dead right, 
if you're the best, you will become the biggest. And yeah. it's not that you want to be the biggest, you want to be the best at what you do. But if you are the best at what you do, it's like if S4 is the best digital transformation agency, which consultancy, which I think it is, we will inevitably become very large. We might not become bigger than Accenture. Accenture is 150 billion. <laughs> we're, we're a paltry two and a half billion dollars or just close to it. Uh, but we're just starting, so they've been at it for yeah. a long time. But you know, that's that's a marker. So you know, you set yourself it's very good to have an enemy. Yeah. It's very, it's very good to have a driving force. And you know, I have a, a couple here. One is, you know, I, I have as I've said publicly recently, a point to prove in relation to WPP. Because I think the, the board of WPP and particularly the chairman behaved abominably. And I, I think they deserve to be taught a lesson, but we shall see. Yeah, no, good on you, good on you. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that, that leads nicely on to my next point. I, I, you talk almost about a, an obsession there of becoming the best, which I, which I buy into completely. And uh, I, I, I did a podcast with an American uh, gentleman uh, a few months back, and he wrote a book called Be Obsessed or Be Average. And I was chatting to uh, our, our mutual friend, Lorna Tilvane, yeah, uh, and when I mentioned that we 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 were we were doing it, she said, "Well, Sir Martin epitomises that that phrase: be obsessed or be average." She loved the phrase, and and, and she said, yeah, "That's something that you epitomise." And well, yeah, yeah would, I, would you say that's the secret to your success? I don't know. It's, a, it's the secret. I mean, I think you know, I, I am, uh, you know, people. You talk to people who sort of know me or know of me, they probably will say that an, an obsession is dangerous because if you've um, obsessed with it you you become imbalanced and i you know i not unbalanced but imbalanced and i you know i think there's something in that i mean i always quote uh, george cabot lodge's uh, course business planning in the environment i think it was for bpe uh, at the first year of the compulsory course at hbs uh, you know i thought that george along with my colleagues was useless he was the son of henry cabot lodge who's the secretary of state i think in the eisenhower administration and we, we thought, of course, but actually his course was extremely wise. He believed there were three circles that intersected in a Venn diagram-like way. You yeah. had your career, your, your family, and society. And, and how you balance those three balls or circles or how they intersected was pretty important. And I thought that was pretty, pretty shallow, but actually it's, it's very deep. And... Um, it's always punctuated my life in some way. And I, and I think you know, if you are obsessed with one of those things, that could be your career, yeah, yeah. Your society, uh, clearly the other two things suffer and you become imbalanced. And what you have to do, and, and I, I, I'm not aware of many people who manage to balance those things successfully. I mean, some may, may do well with their career. Some may well do well with career and family and balance the two. Some may do career, family, and society. But that, 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 those are very rare yeah. or, or rarer. And I found it difficult to do. So if I am obsessed, which I think is fair, um, and I think obsession, if I'm an investor in a company, I want the management to be obsessed. I, I, yeah. I think. The, 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 the biggest problem in businesses is the set. I think Jorge Lehman of 3G got it right. You know, I was at a corporate governance seminar at Microsoft many, many years ago. 
a lot of big, big, big bananas in the room. Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, Jorge Lehman, and others. And he said, you know, I don't believe in corporate governance. I believe that management should have a significant shareholding and share, not options, yeah. or of shareholding that they go and borrow money from the bank. Uh, and the, 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 yeah. the, the problem is the separation of ownership and control. And you know, there was a book, uh, I, I tried to study economics at Cambridge, and I, I, you know, I remember some books, um, but one of the books I remember in particular is, is the, the Theory of Managerial Capitalism by, by a left-wing economist called Robert, Robin Maris. And what he talked about there, he didn't criticize it, he just said, you know, de facto, there's a separation between ownership and control, and that creates um, sort of bifurcated or, or ambivalent objectives. Yeah. So if I look at WPP at the moment, you know, the shareholders didn't get a dividend last year, the management got paid cash bonuses last year, the management took a cut in their salaries this year, they reinstated them already, but the poor old shareholders have been left holding the bag. Yeah. And so management, and there's no wrong, nothing wrong being a manager, management are more concerned about their own position yeah. and their jobs than they are about the business. And if you look at the WPP board, another specific example, they own no shares in the company whatsoever. Right. And so why is it they own no shares? Well, the reason is they think that the prospects for the company are pretty awful. Yeah. Yeah. And they will only do so, you know, they might get given options or restricted stock, but they get that for, for nothing. So I, I think nothing can replace nothing. Going to a bank, borrowing some money, yeah. investing in the company, and getting up every morning with your heart in your mouth. That, that is so, whether you describe that as obsession or whether you describe that as motivation i think that's critically important and you know at s4 i have a controlling share i i you know as long as the person running the company is not a lunatic and i hope i'm not a lunatic that's okay Zuck, why is facebook's a great company it's because zuckerberg runs that company and he has control controversial in some respects larry and sergey still run google yeah. bezos runs amazon and has control of amazon so these are criticized structures from a corporate, uh, the wonks, the, the policy wonks, the government, yeah, yeah. The, the corporate governance policy wonks criticize it. But I think actually it's really the best way. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's rather like a private equity model. Yeah. But, but you know, you have skin in the game, as I say, your heart and your mouth. Every, every time you get up in the morning, you go to bed at night, you go, go to bed, or get up in the morning worrying about the business. That is, yeah. you know, now that can create distortions with family and society. You know, I'm an, and I'm a good case in point in that, or a bad case in point in that. And maybe I do over egg the pudding. If I'm going to be self-critical, and my father, if he was still alive, would 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 say that to me. Um, I'm sure. Um, but you have to be more balanced about it and more nuanced about it. But I do think uh, obsession. Uh, if that's, you know, be obsessed or be average is not a bad way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, I've got friends that, that put lycra on and go out cycling at the weekend. That's, that's their hobby. That's what turns them on. It doesn't do it for me. I, I, I work on the business because that's my hobby as well. It's, it's the, the whole adage, you, well, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, you it was do Mark what you love, McCormack. you never work again. Yeah, it was Mark McCormack who, who, who sort of taught me that. You know, he, he was a scratch golfer. Yeah. He, he had met Arnold Palmer at Lake Forest. And, you know, he was a lawyer. 
and he could have got could have become a professional golfer, I guess, but he decided that Arnold need need management. And that's how IMG was born. Yeah. So he, you know, he, with a handshake, Arnold had ten percent of IMG, which interestingly caused problems with Jack Nicholas. Jack, when I was with Mark, Jack Nicholas left and started Golden Bear Enterprises, uh, which was you know sort of self management. And I think the real thing that burnt burnt him up, not less so Gary Player, I think to be fair was that every time that, that Jack won a tournament or prize money, 10% of it or a portion of 10% of it went to Arnold Palmer. So, yeah. so um, it didn't like that very much. But no, I, Mark said, fine. So the, the line between business and fun, yeah. you know, evaporates, if you like. Yeah. And, um, you know, you'll work it. So I think, you know, that's what my dad said again. He said, you know, find a company an industry you thought was fun and, and the company you thought was fun. Yeah. Uh, and you, 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 we, we've touched on there about uh, yeah, the, the market cap of WPP and S4 Capital and the fact that you, you've got that cap, market cap size up so, so, so big already is incredible for, for S4 Capital. And you, you also mentioned that they've gone from, I think when you left there, 16 billion down to below 8 billion. Yeah, there's yeah. obviously a common denominator there, which, which is you. How much how much difference can one person make to such a big industry or such a big company? Sir? You know, I don't, I don't think that the there are twenty five hundred ninety nine other people at S four. There are ninety thousand nine thousand nine hundred. Well, when I was there, it was one hundred thirty three thousand. But uh, there are lots of other. So you can't. It's not down to one man, but or one woman. Uh, but you know, I do think leaders make a difference. Yeah. And I think passionate leaders, obsessed leaders, whatever you want to, entrepreneurs, uh, people who have skin in the game, people who have their heart in the mouth. You know, I, I don't regard being executive chairman of S4 or indeed being, uh, having been CEO of WPP as a job. It's, yeah. it's you know, it's, 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 it's a Bill Shankly quote, which I always use, you know, football is not a matter of life and death, it's more important than that. And I think that's a great way. You know, Shankly was obsessed with Liverpool. Uh, you know, they haven't had a man, I mean, Bob Paisley they had, but, and now, you know, got Jurgen Klopp. I mean, Jurgen Klopp is probably the reincarnation of yeah. Shankly and, and Paisley. So, uh, you know, you, you, it's, you know, it's like, uh, like Ferguson and Manchester United. I mean, same thing. I mean, it's, um, you know, these people are obsessed or, uh, T totally committed, totally focused, and I, you know, and I think there is, you know, there is collateral damage when you when you do that. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're a well balanced person. It, yeah. it means, but but you know, as an investor, you know, if I was running a fund uh, or an investment vehicle, I would be looking for management that were totally committed, obsessed put their money where their mouth is, had their heart in their mouth, I wouldn't be looking for managers who just regarded it, you know, putting it yeah. simply as a nine to five job. That's not going to get you. And, and so, so much of, you know, and what, the interesting thing about COVID is it's sorting out the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. You know, you, because of this pressure cooker that COVID you know, has provided, it, it, you, you've seen who, who can cope and who can't. Yeah. I, I think it's, you know, if you want to be the best at anything, you, you, you're going to have to make you know, decisions in life. And you look at Olympians, if you're going to 
you're going to put some money on who's going to win a gold medal. You're going to put on put it on the person that's worked the hardest and made those sacrifices. It's, it's yeah, and I think you, you, know, you use the word sacrifice, and I think that's the right thing. I mean, it, and, and that's unfortunate. That means that you know it's like squeezing a balloon. You know, you might yeah. squeeze it here, but it expands elsewhere. And I, I and I think, you know, inevitably, there is, uh, I said, collateral damage, and yeah. and that that's that's sad but I think true and you know it's very difficult I think I know that everybody is very focused on work-life balance particularly with COVID um, and how important it is and I don't disagree with that and it is you know, mental health and balance and work-life balance and family and all that is is really really important I mean maybe above everything else but you know I think in when you're sort of doing the sort of things that we're trying to do yeah there's the, the commitment needed and it is obsessive and um yeah i think that's what i look for and uh, i think that's what investors look for actually you, you, you're talking about the, the importance of the workforce there and and, and you, you've mentioned in the past that you see them as, as an investment rather than a cost um, yeah we, we're very heavily built on our values uh, emg how, how do you keep that culture um, uh, when you're scaling a business to the size well, you have done? The answer is it's very difficult. I mean, we, 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 we've only been in existence for two years, so it's very difficult. And it was you know, difficult with WPP, which had been in business for 33 years when I, when I left. And um, it's very difficult to, to define what the culture is of a, of a WPP or an S4. I mean, I define the purpose of S4, or the mission is to new age new era advertising and marketing services model and and the subset of that is to disintermediate disrupt the old i mean we are yeah. men and women on a mission you know we yeah. we believe that the 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 analog model the ad hold codes as they're called holding companies are um, not fit for purpose and past their sell by date uh, but our purpose is to create employment you know, yeah, you know, I, right. you know, I, I have to say, I mean, this is maybe somewhat controversial, but you know, I, when I saw the business council sign up a year or so ago, you know, that the purpose of a corporation is, you know, to, 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 to feed its stakeholders, if I put it like that, not just to make profits. You know, I, 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 I I've got to say, I, I yawned because, you know, it's, it's very simple. John Brown, who, who used to run a W, uh, BP, WPP used to be uh, the agency to BP, put it very well in 1997, you know, he, where he taught at Stanford Business School, where he talked about the purpose, you know, purpose and particularly in the energy industry, and he talked about how important it was to focus on the long term. So if you think about long-term profitability, all this corporate governance stuff and policy wonks and everything else disappears yeah. because it, you, if you're so for your example if you're in the the energy industry and you're mining for oil um you know or old energy as opposed to new energy but if you're mining for oil, you know you if you're in it for the long term you won't do things that will offend, offend yeah. the local communities or the environment or whatever you will do things that that build for the long term long-term profit if you're in it just to make the largest amount of money in the shortest possible time, you'll rip your level ground and say to hell with the environmental consequences. So long-term profitability, I, you know, I, I, I get 
I can get really almost the extent of being annoyed about it actually because I think there is so much effort put into ESG and everything and it's very very simple yes. we are in business to make the highest level of long-term profitability and if you express it like that yes. it means you take into account you know, your people if you have to invest more in them in either fixed remuneration variable remuneration or whatever if you're worried about the environment in the long term you will make allowance in your strategy for that to you know zero emissions whatever it happens to be so everything gets dealt with if you talk about long-term profitability so i think there's a lot of, you know go really extreme a lot of claptrap in this area it's all about maximizing not short-term profitability but long-term profitability and then everything falls into place you know klaus schwab's stakeholder theory about the interests of all the communities you have to serve falls very neatly in place. Yeah. And that's why I think having a, a stake in the company and, and it all fits together, that ownership and control comes together and is not separated. And that therefore, you know, if, if you have a long-term stake in the business, equity stake in the business, you're naturally going to think about what, what you do in terms of long-term profitability. So, we do an investment in people. So S4, you know, our, our, our revenues are about $400 million. We invest about 250 million pounds in people and about 30 million in property. I mean, just good case in point. You know, I made the point, you know, I'd rather not spend money on landlords. I'd rather invest mm. in. And somebody wrote a snitty piece on LinkedIn saying, well, he's only interested in making money. He's dropping leases. Is only interested in, in making more money. And, and I wrote back and said, yeah, I am interested in making more money, but the way we will do it is by dropping some of our leases, taking some of that investment, not all of it, but taking some of it and investing in people. Yeah. And that way we will make more money. And by the way, we'll create more jobs. Yeah. I was very proud of the fact that at WPP, we had 200,000 people basically with affiliates, companies that we owned less than 50% of, so 133,000 controlled and then another 67 or whatever it was, thousand in companies that we owned up between 20 and 50% of. And I was very proud of the fact that probably if there's three or four people in every family unit, that we were responsible for 600 or 800,000 people. Yeah. And I thought yeah. that was, and I thought, yeah. you know, I think, thought that we started from zero. Now it's true. We, we, acquired companies and therefore acquired some people, but we created employment. So we yeah. start zero at, at S4, we now have 2,600. So maybe we have seven and a half thousand people who are dependent on what we do for their livelihood. And I'm, that's, that's the objective. And I, yeah. you know, I'm not going to complicate it. We're in the, and at a time when jobs are under threat from technological advance, which I, I agree that, I believe that technology decreases demand for jobs. There are people who believe the opposite. I don't believe that. I think, you know, Kate J Maynard Keynes identified it in the general theory in 1929. He said the solution was that we'll all take more holidays. Now that hasn't proven to be the case, but it's going to be even more of a problem. I think that's why retraining, reskilling, education, yeah. private public partnerships in that area is so important. So, you know, I think that's, that's really where we are. Yeah. Okay. 
And, and talking of tech there, you know, you've, you've, you've said that two thirds of your business is in tech and healthcare, which, which in, is the sweet spot, and especially during COVID-19. Yeah. Do you think that that's going to continue to be the case? And, and, and what impact will that have on businesses in that sweet spot that have basically proven that they're, they're recession proof over the last six well, months? Well, that, that, nothing is recession proof. And, you know, when, you, when you're doing well, it, it always happens. Something comes and bites you in the backside. Yeah. And that's the beauty of what we do is that, you know, it's not getting everything right. It's getting, in my view, more decisions right than wrong. Yeah. It's taking decisions because... Delay is a negative, as my dad used to say. And, you know, I delay things when I'm not sure what the answer is. Yeah. You know, if I delay an answer or a response, it's because I'm not sure what the, the right way through is. So, you know, I, I, I just think that's, you know, that's, that's where we are. And, and you know, talking of COVID-19, that's had an unimaginable impact on the business world. What, what do you wish companies were doing more of now? And... and what, what impact do you think the crisis will have on the future of both advertising and healthcare? Well, uh, you know, I, I come back to, to tech and, and healthcare for a minute. I mean, those, those are the V-shaped recoveries in COVID. I mean, COVID, uh, there are four, probably four areas that in-home entertainment and gaming, uh, online shopping, tech and healthcare are the four areas where we were called V-shaped, yeah. U-shaped tends to be more packaged goods and autos. Autos would be a flatter U-shape. Yeah. The L-shapes are obviously hospitality and travel. Uh, there are no chair shapes that I've come across yet, you know, ones that have fallen, fallen apart. But, you know, maybe we will see some, some verticals that, that, that have. But, you know, COVID-19 has had an impact on consumers. Obviously, we're shopping online. One third of U.S. households have tried uh, online shopping for groceries and essentials for the first time during COVID. We're educating online, we're communicating like this online, we're, we're doing our financial services online, we're doing Dr. Dr. Google. And then second area is media. The, the media companies have accelerated their digital transformation. I was on a, a Zoom with uh, one of the, the leading global media groups last night and you know the, the pressure they are facing basically in the form of drop dropping of advertising revenues, increase in subscriptions is huge. And, you know, they're having to adapt even more so newspapers, you know, dropping like flies, Rupert Murdoch closes 100 plus titles in, in Australia, New Zealand, and the ACCC is you know, going after Google in relation to, to news there. Obviously, those two things are correlated. The streamers, uh, Disney Plus, Netflix, Disney Plus, 100 million subscribers, I think it is probably the most successful product launch of all time, you know, that's putting pressure on the free-to-air companies. Outdoor, you know, disappears, but digital outdoor continues to strengthen. So we're seeing at the media. And then lastly, the third area is you've got consumers, you've got media, and then enterprise. The, the resistance to change that you saw pre-COVID, because, you know, you could, if GDP was going up 2 or 3 or 4% since 2008, very little inflation, very little pricing power, you, if you were running one of those companies, you know, one of those uncontrolled listed companies where you lasted as CEO on average five years, you, you know, you looked at it, you grew your top line by two, three or four percent. You cut your costs a bit. You bought back stock. You increased your earnings per share by five to ten percent. That was fine. You know, that yeah. was a, you know, and you retired after your five years on average. And, uh, you know, you, you, you left a, in your minds a, a decent legacy. Now all bets are off. You know, Q2 was carnage, bloodbath, banks, their earnings down 50%. Now, 
we've seen, you know, we bottomed, we were still growing. We grew all the way through COVID, uh, but we bottomed in April, grew faster in May, grew faster in June, and we've had a even stronger July. So yeah. we, we've recovered. We're back to where we were in January and February of this year, pre-COVID, really. Right. And, um, you know, my view is that Q3 will be better than Q2, relatively, Q4 will be better than Q3, and then 2021 will be better, and we'll have a, a vaccine by Q2 of next year. Uh, it might be GSK, it might be Pfizer, it might be Moderna or a mixture thereof, but there will be, you know, something that will, I think, take care of um, yeah. current concern. It won't prevent another pandemic. Um, you know, I read an extraordinary note. There was a guy who's subbing for Ian Bremer at, um, at Eurasia Group, and um, I think he's an American guy, and he, he was working, uh, he, he saw Obama I can't remember the reason why he saw Obama and, and uh, he was working for somebody who was talking to Obama just before Obama uh, finished his presidency. And they asked him, they saw that Obama's attention span was waning. I think it was around 2016. Um, and, and asked him what, what kept him awake at night. And he said, pandemic. And it was quite really? yeah, 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 a very interesting story. That that was the, the the thing. Of course, Trump had a Trump had a report on the pandemic in two thousand eighteen. Uh, it was more what would how could they cope with a pandemic induced by a terrorist organization? Than it was yeah. uh, but what we've seen coming out of Wuhan and everything. But um, just was sort of eye opening. So yeah, I, I I think COVID has had a remarkable impact at the. At the at the consumer level, at the uh, at the uh, media level, and at the enterprise level. And the enterprise level, you know, you could puddle along, as I said before COVID. Now all bets are off. There's no status quo. So change agents inside. This is one of the things that we've seen, which is really important. I think change agents inside companies are getting more oxygen and getting more breathing space and getting more attention. So. The common phrase that we hear is we're implementing our 2024 marketing plan in 2021. So everything is accelerated. I mean, you've heard Satya Nadella saying, you know, 10, whatever he did, 10 years yeah. of change in 10 weeks or whatever. Yeah. That's a, you know, that's a, that was the origination and everybody has a trite, um, you know, sort of embellishment of that. So there's huge change taking place in a very short period of time and an acceleration at the consumer level, at the media level, and enterprise level. That's, that's the big change. And that, yeah. that's how you see the differences. And you know, tech and healthcare, as I say, is about two thirds of our business. And inevitably, hopefully, we will win business in automotive, in packaged goods, whatever it happens to be. But I'd like to keep that tech emphasis because the tech and healthcare life sciences area are going to become, because of COVID-19, will become even more important. So Zoom technology will improve. You know, Microsoft equivalent to Zoom, Google's equivalent to Zoom, uh, Facebook's equivalent to Zoom will all become yeah. more and more sophisticated. And, you know, travel will become less important. And, be, you know, we, we may well have been me down, Scotty. You know, we may very well have a situation where, 
you know, it, I can almost be in the room with you. I mean, this technology mm. is pretty good. I mean, I can, you know, when was the last time that you sat in a meeting and could look at nine people or whatever it is, the maximum yeah. you get on the screen at the same time? And people say, well, you, you miss the interaction. Well, yes, but, you know, if I'm looking at your face and I say something and you don't like it, I can see it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and so finally, what's next for Sir Martin Tower? What's the big goal that you're working towards? Well, you know, I want to see S4. I mean, our, our big goal is around S4. So I'm obsessed with, um, going back to your, to your question, I'm obsessed with making sure that S4 is successful. So that's the number one objective and you know how do you measure i don't really know i just want you know, a lot of people say well what's s4 going to look like in five years time the honest answer is i don't know uh, i would just hope that we achieve our objective creating the new age new era advertising and marketing services model and we disintermediate the old you know generate a lot of interesting new opportunities for our people you know, hire more people as we've done through COVID. We've gone from 2,400 to 2,600 during COVID whilst the holding companies are firing 50,000 people. Yeah. So, you know, I, that's, that's the objective, continue to grow. I mean, our model at S4 is based around four principles, digital only, the, this holy trinity model of first party data driving, the creation of advertising content and programmatic, faster, better, cheaper, and a unitary structure, a one PL structure. That's the, the theory. And you know, we're we're very focused on making sure that that is the model. So, you know, we've got we've got two clients who are what we call whoppers. That's more than twenty million dollars of revenue a year. We we think we're on the cusp of at least another couple. You know, I'm instituting a, a target of uh, twenty squared, which is we will want twenty clients. Uh, with more than $20 million of revenue per annum. Um, yeah. it would take us, that, that would be $400 million plus, which is which are our current revenue base. And at the moment, we only have two that qualify as over $20 million. So getting conversion at scale, proving that our model works at scale is critically important. That's, yeah. that's the next job. But the answer to your general question is just making sure that S4 is as successful as we possibly made. And you know, if you said to me, what does that mean? I don't, honestly don't know. You asked me at WPP after two years, you know, we started in 85 and 87, we made the bid for, for JWT, which was 13 times our size. You know, I couldn't have told you then where we would be. I mean, I knew, you know, if it was post JWT, we knew that we had become 13 times bigger and we were a force, but you know, I wouldn't have been, been brazen enough to say that we would be number one. And I'm not going to say that in relation to S4. We, I just want to make sure this model is successful. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this week. Okay. Uh, a fantastic discussion. Um, Martin, it really has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this very special interview in aid of our 100th episode. It's been a fascinating journey up until this point, and I can't wait to share the next 100 conversations with you. So thanks again to Martin. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you.